Hello everybody, Malcolm here. I'm very happy to be able to introduce this second class in the Abraham series, Adventures in Faith with Abraham. And today we're looking at the Old Testament, Abraham in the Old Testament, and our teacher is my old friend Douglas Jacobi, someone I've known for over 30 years. I'm so pleased that he agreed to do this class for us. I think you're going to love it. So without further ado, I'm going to encourage us to get our Bibles ready, our notebooks ready, and let's dive straight into what Doug has to teach us today. Hello, warm greetings from Livingston, Scotland, where we've been living for a few months now. It's so good to be back in the UK, where we know many people, we know the culture, and uh, we really like the weather in Scotland. I'm looking out at all the snow right now. What a huge bonus after the sweltery, hot summers of the eastern United States. I'm not here to talk about the weather. I'm here to talk about Abraham. But first, let me thank Malcolm for inviting me to be part of this series. For years, Malcolm has been patient, uh, resourceful, and I think given encouragement and hope to many people. And I think so much of his ministry and, uh, and Malcolm to you, thank you for this invitation. The title of my talk is Abraham and the Balance of the Old Testament. I'm not supposed to use Genesis because you've been doing that already, but this character shows up all over the Bible and not just in the Old Testament. We'll be looking at four important themes, uh, four uh, things related to Abraham that affect Judaism and Christianity. And after we do that, we flesh it out, uh, we will look at how Abraham has been misused uh, kind of unhealthy theology surrounding Abraham. I'll close with some practicals, four challenges for us, and then four words of encouragement as well, uh, relating to those four themes that we uh, suss out in this talk. So thank you very much. The first is covenant. Covenant. I'll read one of the fairly well-known passages in Exodus. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So often when there's a reference to the covenant, it mentions the God of Abraham, or it mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I was reading from Exodus chapter 2. But references to the covenant that explicitly mention Abraham are found also twice in chapter 3, they're in chapter 4, they're in chapter 6. Uh, you can find these everywhere. The people are in trouble. They've been enslaved. They've been in Egypt. We don't know for how long. We don't know how long they've been in slavery. But eventually, uh, their cry to the Lord uh, resonates, and the Lord raises up Moses, and we know that story. But the key words, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, remembering here is not a cognitive thing. It's not a mental, oh, right, Abraham, where is my mind? What was I thinking? It's a relational remembering. As in the central verse of the flood story, God remembered Noah. That's the center of the entire account, Genesis 8, 1. And it's not that, oh, that's right, I've got my son, uh, he's on a boat somewhere. Oh, I hope he's still alive. It's remembering in a relational way, honoring and connecting. God remembers Noah. So from Genesis 12 
to Revelation 22, the covenant with Abraham is biblically crucial. This is God's initiative. God calls Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. We all look to him. Covenant. A second, and you can trace this on your own, you can trace the theme of covenant throughout the Old Testament, and you'll be amazed how often Abraham comes up. The second one is idolatry. Now, of course, this is not a positive. This is not something Abraham did, but it is connected, and you'll see how. I'll read from Joshua 24, verse 1 to 3. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And then Joshua continues this preamble. Of course, in Joshua 24, he's going to call his generation to be faithful because it's not so clear they will be. But the reference is to Abraham and Abraham's father, Terah, and the idolatrous polytheistic culture from which they came, where they lived in Mesopotamia. There's a familiar story among in Jewish tradition, and maybe you've heard of it as well, uh, that Abraham's uh, uh, father had a, uh, a shop, a wood-making shop, and possibly a shop that made idols. And Abraham wasn't, he didn't feel this was right. And so he smashes the idols with a stick, and then he puts the stick in the hand of the biggest idol. And when his father goes back, he says, the father says, what, what happened to Abraham? And he says, well, you know, they got out of control. I guess, the, you know, he beat them up and destroyed them. And... Um, you know, because he, he wanted to steal the offerings that had been made to these idols, the grain or something. And Terah says, that's impossible. Uh, he refuses to believe it. The idols aren't alive. And then Abraham challenges his father, well, then why are you worshiping the work of human hands? It, it's lifeless. There's no soul. Why do you do that? And thus, Terah was persuaded away from idolatry. <laughs> well, it's a nice story. True or not, probably not true. Uh, you'll find that um, in a source called Genesis Rabbah uh, 38, if you want to look it up. Why do I mention this? Because for covenant to work, there has to be a break with idolatry. Joshua calls the people of his day to reaffirm, to reconfirm this covenant. But as Joshua tells him, it's impossible if you're going to worship the idols from your own past, the idols from Mesopotamia, the land beyond the river and the land between the rivers. And so that's an important thing. That's significant. Covenant idolatry. Now, a third theme, and this is huge. It's a theme of the land. Back in Genesis 12, when God made those three or four promises to Abraham, right, the spiritual promise, the nation promise, he made the land promise. Um, but what land does Abraham have? Abraham dies owning not much real estate. There's that field of Machpelah that he bought from the Hittites, and there's a cave where he buries Sarah, and that's it. And truth is, uh, Isaac doesn't have much land or Jacob, and then the people all end up in Egypt anyway, and by the time, time they are in the land, uh, what, what, after Joshua brings them in, you have all these other peoples living there, squatters, in effect. They shouldn't have been there, but they were there. So, Land is important, but Abraham doesn't actually have land. 
he's still wandering. He's still uh, a nomad, so to speak, at the time of his death. Quite amazing because Abraham wasn't poor. Uh, you may have covered this in a previous talk, but I think it's in Genesis 13. It speaks of his immense wealth. And wealth at that time was especially measured in flocks and herds. But he was a wealthy person and he wandered, but he didn't actually have the land. Well, that's okay for a nomad, but I think that's a significant thing because landlessness and landedness uh, make a, a big uh, um, uh, theme from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I mean, Genesis is written probably the final version when the people are in exile in Babylon. They've been, uh, they've lost their land. Abraham, um, Abraham, Adam and Eve are pushed out of the land. God says, you have to leave. Cain has to wander. Uh, trace this theme. Genesis would have meant more, much more. Look at the wandering after Tower of Babel. They all go in different directions. Genesis meant more because of people's experience with Babylon and the captivity. Uh, so that theme of wandering and that longing for the land is, is significant. Uh, 1 Kings 18, I'll put these in the notes I send you. 2 Kings 13, Psalm 47, several passages in Isaiah, which is a book I'm spending a lot of time in every day. But the land is a significant theme. God promised it to Abraham. But the amount of land Abraham has at the time he dies is very, uh, very, very small. The fourth theme, faith. Or we could call it faithfulness because faith what does faith mean? For a lot of people, it's you know believing something you know isn't true. Uh, one uh, theologian who I've enjoyed meeting and listening to and reading uh, says that maybe a better word for faith, at least in the New Testament, would be fidelity or allegiance. Uh, because showing it's like showing good faith, keeping faith. This has much more to do with our behavior than with our motivation or our feeling. You could be faithful to the terms of a covenant, even if you had mixed feelings, you could still do what's right. You can obey. Uh, and Protestants, uh, and a lot of our DNA is from Protestants, they think of faith way too much as just a mental concept or some kind of feeling you have. What Abraham does, obviously, he steps out in faith. And that theme is biblical in both Testaments. I like to read from Isaiah. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. That's Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. I think the emphasis is that God is immensely powerful. He takes one man, Abraham, and look what he did. God is faithful, and yet we must remain faithful. Okay, those are four huge themes uh, concerning Abraham in the balance of the Old Testament. Covenant, idolatry, land, and faith. Let's talk about how Abraham has been misused and misunderstood. And one of those ways has to do with reliance upon numbers. This is a passage from Ezekiel 33. The prophet is challenging um, a people not they don't look like they're going to repent, but he's speaking to the uh, the well the former inhabitants of the Holy Land. I mean, this is the time of the exile. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. And that, that's Ezekiel, not Jesus. The inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many, 
the land is surely given to us to possess. And that's Ezekiel 33, 23, 24. So the people are reasoning that Abraham was given the land. Understand, most of the Jews in Ezekiel's day, they were scattered. They're in Babylon, they're in Egypt. They're all over the Mediterranean, mainly the Eastern Mediterranean, but they're all over the place. And uh, uh, some, uh, some have returned and some will return, but most don't really want to be there. So what they're saying is Abraham was one man and he got the land. Therefore, since we're more than one, in fact, we're quite a few more than one, we're going to be okay. That's not the right reasoning because the passage is about God's power. Uh, God is not powerless, of course. He's not unfaithful to the terms of his covenant, but it's his people who are being unfaithful. And to, and to use those kinds of number games, that's just not right. I'm, I've seen this, many of you would probably have too, excessive reliance on statistics and, and numbers. I've been to a good number of conferences where in the introduction, uh, someone will say, in our country, we have X churches. We started with only one in this city, and it was only this many people. And now we have this many people in this city, in this city, in this city. But what's not honest, I mean, apart from the emphasis on numbers, which is excessive and contradicts the spirit of 2 Samuel 24, I think, what's, what's not fair is what they don't say is, well, we started here, and we were this big, and now we're just a fraction of what we used to be. And we're there, same thing, and we've, we have more ex-members than we have present members. So they're using numbers to try to impress people, but it's very selective cherry-picking, is it not? Here's another. Actually, let me just continue in Ezekiel. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to your idols, and you shed blood, and shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, each of you defiles his neighbor's wife, shall you possess the land? Say this to them, thus says the Lord, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. Whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured, and those who are in strongholds and caves shall die by pestilence, and I will make the land a desolation and a waste. So in that selection I read to you from Ezekiel, uh, that was 33 verses 23 to 28, six verses, um, the land, 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 land. Okay, six times I see the word land in those uh, six verses. This is a big thing, the land. Yes, but you don't just get the land. And faulty reasoning uh, with your numbers will not save you when you're not living a faithful life, when there's a double life, there's a life of sin. God is most unimpressed. And a second, this is the other, I'm only sharing two, uh, misuses of Abraham, is a reliance on ancestry, spiritual pedigree. You remember the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. If you go back far enough, we're all descended from somebody special, somebody famous, somebody important. <laughs> but it may be important in a bad sense or a good sense. I have a family member who, who likes to look into genealogies, and he found out that we're actually descended from some no nobleman in Scotland. Well, yeah, this is centuries ago. <laughs> we probably share a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the DNA, but we get proud of that, right? I have a, 
I have an ancestor who was the governor of California, uh, not Schwarzenegger. On the other hand, see, it goes both ways. I found out, uh, I found out uh, recently, well, a year ago, that we had family who left the eastern U.S. All of our family are really from the British Isles and from northern Europe, Scandinavia, Germany. But the ones who lived in the south, in Georgia, they, they moved west to Texas, taking their slaves with them. Am I proud of that? Of course not. But if you dig back, you can always find something to be proud of or something to be abashed over. Look, uh, Jesus hits this himself. That was John the Baptist. Look what Jesus says in John 8. Uh, this is after he tells the, the Jews who believe him that you need to remain in my word if you want to be free. John 8, 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Abraham is mentioned there, that's verse 33, and 37, 39 to 49, and 53, 56 to 58. Now you'd say, well, Douglas, you're supposed to be in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. Yeah, I know, but it's still, the, the Old Covenant is still in force, right? They're still God's Old Covenant people. And challenging people on the religious pride is something that the prophets did again and again. They may all have been descended from Abraham, but uh, God is unimpressed. He could raise up children for Abraham from the stones. Such a selective memory they had. <laughs> we're, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. You don't, you, did you forget about the Egyptians? How about that trouble with the Midianites? Um, how about your freedom when it came to Assyria and Babylon and Persia and so forth? Well, the Jews were often slaves, but it's that selective memory. And I think there are many things that Christians should be proud of, even our pedigree, if you will. Um, God used people who used other people, who, who, uh, who connected with other people, who were connected with other people, who have at some point reached out to you. You're a Christian because someone spoke to someone else. There's a chain of... Uh, links and God was at work. And that's good. It doesn't mean everything in the past was right. It doesn't mean everything was wrong. It doesn't mean it was all good or all bad. But we need to live in the moment, not the past. We need to live with faith in the present. Don't rely on ancestry, pedigree, uh, history. Uh, that's a huge mistake. And you'll find that confronted throughout both Testaments. So I hope that's helpful. Two misuses. And one is this funky... Uh, really not very logical uh, use of uh, spiritual arithmetic to, to make you feel like, well, because we're connected to Abraham, you know, we're going to be okay. Uh, that's on the numbers side. And then the other one, it's similar. It's, it's using that connection with Abraham to say that, you know, we've never been, how dare you say that? It's insulting, you know, and they're so touchy, but they forget their history. They're, they're not being honest with the record. As Jesus says, they have no room for God's word, verse 37. And that's why they do not remain in God's word, John 8, 31. That's why they're not free. I wish we could learn this lesson. You know, Luther, when he wrote, when he translated uh, the New Testament into German, uh, which was a bold thing to do, he was fascinated with Abraham, uh, Abraham who was not justified by law. Of course, to Luther, with all the legalism of Catholicism of the 16th century, he had a hard time looking at the word law and not thinking of the Catholic Church and canon law and so forth. But that's really not what Paul was speaking about in Romans 3. He's referring not to obedience. He's not even talking about deeds, but the Torah. This is the context of Romans. 
Abraham was not justified by law. He was justified before the, the law, right? He, he was justified by faith before circumcision. He was justified by faith, by that quality of allegiance to God, not by uh, Torah. So it's not a passage. Romans 3.28 is not a passage about obedience or deeds. It's about the law of Moses. Luther put it this way, uh, when I read that, allein, alone, I checked it with my Greek New Testament. It's not there. Luther just added a word in there. So he's got this filter. He's reading God's word, and he's misunderstanding Abraham. He's misunderstanding the law, and eventually... Although he helped many people, he also led many people astray. Okay, so we've got to be careful how we use the Old Testament. We need to be careful, and hopefully the Lord will uh, keep us from the most egregious kinds of errors. Let's talk about uh, some challenges. What, what does this mean for me, for you? Well, I, I've, got a, I've got a couple challenges here. Uh, we need to watch our pride. I think that's uh, significant. Maybe we're brought up in the church, a long line of leadership. Your father was a leader in the church, and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and it goes back. Or maybe you've been, quote, in the ministry for many years. I've been in the ministry since I was baptized. Um, but, you know, in the modern, in the sense of the clergy and the laity, you've been on staff for many years. Uh, is God respects our work. As the Hebrew writer says, God's faithful. He doesn't forget our, our labor. But you don't get exempted from well, the requirements of holiness just because you're a leader or your grandfather was in the ministry or something like that. So we need to watch out with pride. Second a challenge, let's not play the numbers games. Uh, as I mentioned, that's bogus. Um, it's just, it's not right. We can mislead people if we say there was no one in our city and now we have tens or hundreds or thousands. We mislead them. We imply that the ministry is healthy, but it may not be healthy. And it also ignores the massive numbers of walkaways because in many cities, the actual number of ex-members is far greater than the number of current members. Let's not criticize groups that are not growing quickly. We all long for growth, but we need to build with quality. Don't be the hare, be the tortoise. Sometimes slow is okay. And let's watch our theology. Parts of Protestantism, as I mentioned, are good and healthy. Others are not so. And I believe that if we're anchored in the Old Testament, we have a great knowledge of God's word. Both Testaments will be better. People will be healthier spiritually and will have a better effect on others and make it easier for others to see Christ. Now, let me give some um, encouragement for us uh, in the, those areas of covenant, idolatry, land, and faith. Covenant. Remember that God is faithful, uh, yet there are terms in any covenant. We need to do our part. He keeps his side. We keep our side. There's love. There's respect. It's a relationship. And you're in the New Testament. We're still under the new covenant. Covenants are not just an Old Testament thing, okay? So let's be like Abraham, the father of the faithful, and he's at the center of God's concern for mankind. Idolatry. We have our own idols. We have our own idols, especially popularity, 
uh, sex, money, the, the military, uh, that is the, the forces and the political power that will preserve our lifestyle for us and so forth. We, modern people have their idols. And in, of course, in much of the world, they still have literal idols that, that are bowed down to. Hundreds of millions of people uh, follow idols of the older kind, of the image of the, the man or woman or God or the goddess. Let's be like Abraham and take a stand. Abraham left a land of idolatry with his father. Um, they settled kind of halfway. Then he went all the way to the promised land. And he has other wanderings, peregrinations as well. He's in Egypt, for example. But he made, made a break with idolatry. We may not understand how unique, well, how unique, it was unique. I don't know of any other people in the ancient world who worshiped only one God, who didn't believe, that is, in a multiplicity of gods. And Abraham does that. He takes a stand. And, you know, whether the story about Terah's idol shop is true or not, it certainly illustrates uh, the, the faith of Abraham. So let's remember God's be faith, God is faithful, but we do our part. That's covenant. Idolatry, let's take a stand like Abraham. What about the land? Well, no book in the New Testament, I think, uh, explains more the significance of this than the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to read a couple passages. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him at the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. So he was looking forward uh, to that city with foundations, but he himself, uh, even in the promised land, it was pretty much a foreign land for him. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews eleven fifteen to 16. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city, the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, that's Hebrews 11, 21 to 22. I mentioned that because we really go wrong if we focus on the geographical land of Israel, the political city of Jerusalem, the uh, biological or partly biological descendants of Abraham, that is the modern Jews, because the heavenly Jerusalem is what we look for. The city that has foundations is the city that is above. And the land is not a parcel, a geographic parcel. Uh, it is a better country, a heavenly one. And I'm not, I can't explain all that right now, even if I understood it. Uh, but I do have one more passage for you. Hebrews 13, 14, where the writer says, Here, here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So, land. It's not about acreage. It's not about square miles or kilometers. It's not about being represented at the United Nations. No, we are all nomads like Abraham. The true land is connected with God's promise, and that is a, a heavenly country. And what about faith? How, how, how does Abraham help us with faith? Well, in many ways, but again, from Hebrews. All these people, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. <laughs> that may not be very encouraging. They died without receiving the promise. It's like, you know, you promise someone a gift and then 
you move away or you die and the guy doesn't get the gift. Well, you know, I was looking forward to it. Well, the promise is still valid. We may assume that we're supposed to receive it in this lifetime, but God doesn't necessarily promise that. In fact, it seems the whole point of Hebrews 11 is to show that real faith, the faith of Abraham, is doing what's right, even if you're not the ones who will receive the object of the promise. You may not receive it. Maybe your descendants will. Maybe your grandchildren. Maybe generations later. But we still do what's right. And they were all commended by faith. They were living by faith when they died, but they didn't receive what was promised. And that's Hebrews 13, 39. Ah, wow. So faithful means, it means that there's allegiance, that there's fidelity. It's a lifestyle. It's a willingness to press on through thick and thin, understood, misunderstood, genuine, yet maybe regarded as imposters, as Paul puts it. We cannot tie our joy. We cannot link our, our happiness and our determination to be obedient to just circumstances and how we feel. And in all these ways, and particularly with connection to covenant idolatry, to land and to faith, Abraham and Sarah, I would say, Abraham and Sarah are for us exemplars par excellence. Let's imitate them. Amen. Thank you so much, Doug. That was really, really helpful. I hope you found it helpful too. I'd like to say one final thing just before we wrap up the class for today. Firstly, is that the, the next class is coming up in two weeks' time, and Andy Bowachi is teaching one of our classes coming up, so looking forward to that. And secondly, I'd like to encourage us to support Doug in his work. He hasn't asked me to do this, but it would be tremendously helpful, a blessing to you, but also to his work, if you could sign up for his newsletter if you haven't already done so. And if you wish to, to sign up at his website, not only for the newsletter, but also to be a premium subscriber to the website where you'll get access to an enormous amount of content. Uh, I'm a member there. I get the newsletter and I'm a subscriber. And it's something like 20 something pounds a year. It's not much money. And there are, there's just thousands of articles, of, of blog articles, of, of, of theological art, articles, uh, questions and answers, uh, podcasts and all kinds of things that I think you'll find tremendously helpful. So let's, um, uh, he's encouraged us, so let's find a way perhaps to encourage and support Doug in what he's doing. Thanks so much. And thanks again, Doug. Take care and God bless.